Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and I am taking a brief break from playing Resident Evil 2 to record the intro for this week's episode of the Needless Things Podcast, which is the promised second part of the Kirk Thatcher interview that was started Way back in August of last year, uh, episode 225, if you go listen to that, I talked to the absolutely lovely, incredible, gorgeous, talented, uh, unparalleled Kirk Thatcher on uh, episode 225. So go back and listen to that one first, and then come back and listen to part two, which was recorded live at DragonCon. Now, I understand I'm a little bit behind on posting the DragonCon panels. Uh, I've, I've get, a few have gone up, uh, the Ric Flair panel, the 1988 panel, and the video game panel uh, have all been posted. I've still got a couple left to go. The Sting and Ric Flair panel will probably be the final one that I post from last year's DragonCon, but I like to space these things out. I don't want to have like a month of older recorded stuff uh, not that it's in any way inferior obviously as today's absolutely incredible live panel with the gonzo kirk thatcher will prove uh, but I, I like to you know we've got our commentaries we've got things that are kind of timely i want to mix it up as much as i can so anyway that's why uh, the dragon con panels have been kind of spread out over the last couple of months so there you go. Today's is an awesome show. But that break from Resident Evil 2, let me tell you guys about this game. So, I love, you know, I love horror. It's a big part of my life. Movies, comics, books, uh, and video games to a somewhat lesser extent. Now, back in the day, I used to play video games a whole lot more than I do now. Sorry, I had to pause for a little sip of beverage there. You gotta hydrate. Hydrating and gyrating. Very important, kids. Remember that. Uh, which, by the way, speaking of, you need to go and check out Troublemaker, a film by Jason C. Wilson. If you Google that, you will find everything you need to know. I'll talk about that a little more on a future episode. But, uh, so Resident Evil 2, the remake, or I guess, I don't know if remake is the right word, update, uh, upgrade, whatever you want to call it, the graphics are incredible. Uh, the game is a delight to play because everything works about as well as it could possibly work. And I don't... The original one came out in like 98, I think. It's it's around 20 years ago. And I played it, but I, I really don't... If I sit down and think about it, I don't specifically remember it. I remember certain things about it, but the fun of replaying it is... Something will happen, and I'll be like, oh, that's that thing. Or I'll find, like, a pipe with a gear in it, and I'll be like, oh, I have to get that handle. Cool, I remember that. I don't know where it is, but I remember doing that. This is fun. And that's kind of like the compelling fun of the game for for me, for somebody who has played it or, or played the older version of it, is getting these little these little whiffs of nostalgia as I'm playing through this gorgeous, incredible, scary gaming experience uh 
the control is fantastic. I'll tell you right now, I'm playing it on uh, assisted, which is like the wimpiest level you can play at. It it has assist. It's not auto aim because it doesn't always go exactly where you need it to go. Uh, but it's assisted aiming, so it's a little easier to get headshots than it otherwise would be. Uh, there's a little more ammo around. Enemies do a little bit less damage. And it says you recover health uh, slowly as the game goes on. I can't say I've noticed that, but in all honesty, I, I haven't. I, I Actually, the reason I'm taking this break right now is I died for the first time. Uh, I won't say when because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't played the game or doesn't remember it because this was a this was a fun surprise for me. But it's a certain point in the game. Uh, it's a huge WTF moment. Uh, that that's what the fuck. Not Mark Mark Marin doesn't show up and talk you to death. Uh, which which honestly maybe would be the best and worst way to go. But uh, it's a, it's a big big moment. Literally. And uh, I, I knew what was coming, and I just didn't know what to do about it. Uh, so I did actually die for the first time. And so I was like, you know what? Let's take a little break. Let's get caught up on The Gifted, which, by the way, still the best X-Men show on tell or best X-Men adaptation, really, of any kind. Uh, I, I, Quality-wise, sure, Logan is probably the best film that has been made based on the idea of the X-Men. Uh, but uh, adaptation-wise, as far as carrying forward the ideas from Marvel's X-Men comics, uh, The Gifted is it. I love it, and I, I've said it before on the show. It's absolutely fantastic. So I'm going to get caught up on that, and uh, then I'm going to get back to some Resident Evil now that I think I'm pretty sure I know how to handle uh, this this big situation that popped up. So, having said that, uh, one more TV thing I want to talk about. I am, if you're following me on Instagram, as you know, I, I like to say Phantom Troublemaker because it's kind of funny, but I am actually fully Phantom Troublemaker on Instagram. But if you're following me on Instagram, uh, you're following me on Facebook as just Dave West, uh, then you know I watched Silence of the Lambs the other night and was kind of re-enchanted all over again because it's one of those movies that I watched so many times that I got to the point where it wasn't special anymore. Uh, so I, it's probably been a decade since I watched that movie. Watched it again the other night and was blown away all over again uh, and decided that I needed to try and revisit Hannibal, the television show, uh, with Mads Mikkelsen uh, as Hannibal and, oh shoot, what's his name? Hugh Dancy, is that right? Is Will uh, as the investigator? And and the incredible Lawrence Fishburne as, as uh, Jack... Uh, can't remember his last name right now. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I, when the show first came on, uh, I didn't check it out because it just looked... Well, one, the idea of somebody other than Anthony Hopkins playing Hannibal was just absurd uh, at the time. And then once it ended up on Netflix or maybe it was Amazon Prime or, or maybe even, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I think we might have even recorded the first season and just couldn't stay caught up with it and went back and started watching them. And I got into this. And look, if you haven't watched the show, this will sort of spoil something, but not really. It's it's. 
it's a thing that happens in the show, but it's not necessarily a surprise plot line. So at one point, uh, they discover these bodies buried in the ground that have mushrooms growing out of them. It's horrifying. And the first time that me and the missus went to watch the show, I tapped out there because, and, and I'm, I get the concept of being triggered. I think that maybe the word gets used out of context sometimes or gets used when it's not like what happened. It wasn't necessarily something where you lose control of your, your emotions and your thoughts, but seeing those corpses with these mushrooms growing out of them for sure triggered me. Uh, since I was a little kid, I've had nightmares about mushrooms growing out of me it's a i know it's a weird thing uh but it was it was it's one of the you know and maybe not everybody has this but there are ongoing themes that occupy your nighttime hours and one of those for me has been a very very vivid dream about finding mushrooms growing out of my arms and it sounds maybe kind of funny if you're picturing like Super Mario mushrooms or something ridiculous like that. But for me, they were very realistic, like the nasty looking mushrooms you find out in the wild, not these little attractive harvested mushrooms that you find in the grocery store. It's it's just sitting here thinking about it right now. Parts of my anatomy are crumpling and shriveling up. Uh, and and it's, it's a one of those deep base things and seeing that uh i that first time it was too much i was like i'm i'm not watching this show and i don't know if i was necessarily cognizant of that being the trigger at the time i just knew i didn't want to watch the show uh and then so my wife continued watching it because she doesn't have my weenie mushroom fear uh and and loves it it's one of her favorite shows of all time as it is with many people uh and for myself i love brian fuller and i've been wanting to get back to it and only once I saw Silence of the Lambs again, I was like, man, I want more of Hannibal Lecter. I want more of this story. I've got to go back uh, and, and check out and give Hannibal another shot. And I did. I was ready for the Mushroom People this time, and they still horrified me, but I got past it. And the, the acting is phenomenal. Everybody's great. Uh, the idea that somebody might be a... And it's not fair, really, to compare Mads Mikkelsen to Anthony Hopkins because they're having very different opportunities to interpret Hannibal Lecter. Uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins had a grand total of, what, six hours to play Hannibal Lecter, whereas Mads Mikkelsen has already, in the episodes I've watched, surpassed that time. And is playing a much more uh, nuanced version. Uh, the, just, it, it's a different thing. You can't compare them. It's apple, it's, 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 uh, it's not apples and oranges. It's people kidneys and people livers. You can't compare those two things, as any culinary expert could tell you. Uh, so anyway, loving Hannibal. I'm I'm seven or eight episodes in right now on Amazon Prime, and and it's just fantastic. Last thing I want to put over uh, before we get into the incredible interview, the live chaotic, not chaotic, but live and exciting interview with uh, Kirk Thatcher at Dragon Con with a live audience. I want to talk to you about uh, pals at Theme Park Alchemy making incredible candles uh, not based on theme park rides, 
inspired by your favorite theme park rides. Uh, go check out themeparkalchemy.com. They will make your house and your life smell better. So go check that out. And now it is time. And, and you know what? It occurs to me just now, a Kirk Thatcher candle would not be a bad idea. That guy smelled delightful. I Just right now, I wish he was sitting right here next to me, uh, just so I could be soothed by his inherent uh, wild and worldly aromas. But anyway, uh, Kirk Thatcher, live from Dragon Con 2018. Enjoy. <laughs> Just for the guys in the front row here, you are in the splash zone. Yeah. It's a different kind of panel. Than you did. Do. You got the memo about bringing ponchos, right? Yeah. It's like a Gallagher show. Gallagher show, but it's not a watermelon. No. This guy, which that guy, which this guy? Oh no. I'm not. Is that, is that it? I mean, no. I mean, hey. is this it? Is how I meant to read that line. This is it. Woo. Well, thank you all for showing up. I, was, I had a bet with my grandfather that this would be an empty room. <laughs> He's dead, so I talk to him all the time. Oh, no, he, was, he had a good life. Yeah, it was a railroad tie. Um, <laughs> steady, steady work. <laughs> it's him. Should we? Should we officially? You gave me a fireball, and now I'm like, ah. I did. Yeah, I, let's officially start. I did. It's it's time to officially. Start. Is everybody ready to officially start? Yeah. I I was led to believe that here on the puppetry track, uh, there was a need to be loud, which is this. Uh, I would like to hear you one more time state that you are ready to start. I'm ready. I like that. Such that was good. Cheap, such a cheap thing to do. Oh, cheap. I'm all about cheap. That's all I've got. You, look at this suit. Look how cheap this I know. is. I know. Actually, he wore the suit, so I'd look normal. It's the first time it's on true. a panel I look like, oh, he's just a guy. That's true. I just want to make Kurt comfortable. And, and you did. That's you. what I'm here for. Yeah, you can't see what's going on under the table. <laughs> Both hands pillow. on the table. It's a pillow. What? It's comfortable. See, that's what I'm talking about. Comfortable. <laughs> like, Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome to the Kirk our Thatcher panel at Dragon Con. Wow, my people. I'm flattered. Thank you for coming. I hope it's interesting. That's going to be awesome. I Well, it will. I, I spent like a day cobbling all these photos and, and weird videos from my career, and then it's not working. The tech's not working. So you're, you, I think you're going to get to see that picture of me and I think four behind-the-scenes pictures of Turkey Hollow and the, the one thing you're going to see, which is kind of fun, is later on we're talking about the Muppet Hollywood Bowl O2 shows, and you see a little video clip from, uh, from uh, the O2 cool. show, oh, yeah. a Doctor Who clip. So, Which we only found out about, like, what, yesterday, I think, that we were going to be able to show they it? asked for it, yeah. They asked for it two, three days ago, and I said, oh, let me ask Disney, and they said, sure. So. Which, and, of which, course, that came through. Everything else I spent, I spent my own time on doesn't come through. I, I, the internet help? I don't, I, I don't know if you guys I don't know if you guys are familiar with Disney, but sure is not a word that often yeah, enters into their vocabulary. I pretty much like nah, it's not gonna happen. And they're like, yeah, why not? Like, well, okay. So right. while uh well, I think we should start with the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I don't though, think right? we're like, yeah, yeah. 
just start We're, We're not going to get the pictures, I believe. I mean, unless he Ryan yells, "I got him!" So you tell us. Here we go. But yeah, if the, but if there's anything, because we've spoken before on the Needless Things podcast. <laughs> All right, thank you. Oh, that was you. That was me. That was me. Uh, but if there's anything that I've learned, it's that painting verbal pictures is something that you're very capable of. Mm-hmm. So regardless of our AV content, <laughs> this crowd is going to be amazed. All right, close your eyes. <laughs> Come with me and you'll visualize. That's terrible. Right? All right. So you guys are puppet enthusiasts, I believe. Yep. Yes. Okay. So I, we were going to, we, we were talking beforehand, mainly about Muppet stuff, uh, because before Muppets, technically the puppets I worked on were just a couple on Jedi and uh, Gremlins. And I'm happy to talk about that when we go to Q&A. But we're going to pretty much focus on when I met Jim Henson on, which is 1986 to now. So it was at 30, 30 years. Um, and I met him. The thing I really wanted to show you was the two sculpts I did. If you go to my Instagram, it's Kirk, I think Kirk Garthatcher or Kirk Thatcher on Instagram. You can see there's a chameleon and a... Um, cockroach character I designed and they're a little they're a little my cats about this big and I showed them to Jim Henson wow I just got like 60 new Instagram followers um, and uh, you don't have to follow me you just look at it uh, and I showed these to him and he hired me about a week later so that's what I want to show but you're not going to see it so imagine if you will a realistic weird cockroach <laughs> yeah you can't do that it's pretty specific um, so I met Jim and he called about a week later and um, my mom answered the phone and heard this funny voice She's like, she's like, oh, it's you know. She thought some a friend of mine was doing Kermit or something, so she played along. Was like, oh yes, I'll get him right away. And uh, so that was pretty funny. I'm like, mom, it's Jeanette. She thought, oh, I thought that was one of your friends doing a funny voice. Um, That's one of my favorite stories about Frank and Jim is that they both didn't think they did voices. <laughs> Jim only does three voices. He's got, you know, Jim Henson, Grim the Frog, kind of Ernie, but more excited. And he has uh, uh, Rolf the Dog, you know, down here, which is also, uh, oh gosh, two or three other characters. And Link Hogfrog, kind of the, the idiot. That's the only three voices he really did. But as kids, we had no oh, yeah. idea. No, I know. <laughs> but so know. he kind of was right, he didn't do voices. But Frank Oz. Who have you ever met or heard Frank talk? He talks like this, and he's got that voice. That's how he talks. And he's like, he didn't do voice. I found out from either Jim or Frank, he said, Frank didn't do voices for eight years. He did right hands and all this because he thought, I, I, can't, I can't do a funny voice. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show you, you're never a, a self-aware. So what you think you might not be good at, you actually might be. So ask your friends, but not direct family. Mm. <laughs> well, it depends on your family. Some people's family like, you suck. But... But yeah, ask people you know from high school on, and then if they go, "Oh, you're really good. You do great voices," then probably believe them and, and go for it, whatever it is. Okay, thanks. That's my inspirational speech. Huh? Solid. Follow your dreams. Um, so I met Jim and started designing with him uh, on a show that never got made. Um, it was a kids' entertainment thing about these aliens flying around the Earth in a weird spaceship-like balloon. And I designed like three or four aliens, and he was trying to sell it as an educational show that would teach kids about geography and different cultures around the world. Like in this culture, they eat crickets, or you know, they get married when they're five, or whatever it was. <laughs> um, but not judgmental. It was just sort of like to open kids' minds. Like not everything is the way it is where you live. Right. And uh, so again, very progressive and very gym. Like oh, I'm going to teach the world how to love each other. Um, and it didn't sell. I don't even know who they pitched it to. <laughs> yeah, that didn't sell in America. What a surprise. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not a political comment. Kind of a political comment. Um, and then I started working. Uh, I, he flew, I moved to New York, and he wanted me to go work on the Jim Henson Hour, which uh, was two halves. How many people have, have seen any or part of it? If you saw the storyteller, you saw part of it. And the first half was Muppet stuff. So I designed a bunch of characters that became Muppets and only lasted with that show. The only one who lasted, I think, longer at, at that batch was Clifford. Um, and the idea was, why can't we design a Muppet who has African-American or African uh, facial characteristics, but it's not offensive. It's just, you know, like we have a bunch of white guy Muppets or very, you know, Caucasian. What's wrong with other races? And, and again, Jim was trying to, you know, be progressive. And so that's where Clifford came from. Um, and he was done by Kevin Clash, who's, who's African-American. So we thought, well, if Kevin's okay with it, like, and he was, and so that's where Clifford was born. He was kind of a catfish human type of thing. Um, but I did a bunch of other characters that, again, Leon the Chameleon, um, it was just I was reminded of because I put that chameleon sketch up that I'd done earlier. It was more realistic. So I did a bunch of designs and was an idea guy. That was the great thing about Jim. He would just sit with me, like you and I are sitting, but we were probably facing each other more. And um, he'd go, okay, so we need to come up with uh, an opening for the, the show. I'm like, okay. I have a griffin. <laughs> Literally, he'd be like, we have a really neat griffin puppet, and we have a white lion that we made for it. And they're all kind of realistic. And he's like, so, you know, come up with some ideas. <laughs> okay, so I just go off and write and draw and, and storyboard and, and come back and spill my drink. And um, <laughs> I'm not drunk, you are. <laughs> uh, and... That's that was my job for a year and change was hanging out with Jim Henson, brainstorming with him and drawing characters and then it wasn't my problem. I spent so many time in clubs in, in, in Toronto, Canada because I'd be done at four or five. The creature shop would have to make or the puppet shop would have to make it. So I was like, I've died and gone to heaven. I get paid to do this and I was living in Canada, which was it was Toronto. We were up there even though I'd moved to New York. We spent I spent most probably nine months of that year in, in Canada. And then that show did not get picked up, and Jim wanted me to stay, and I'm like, I just don't want to take your money. And again, he was generous. He's like, no, I'll just stay and you know, come up with new ideas. I'm like, nah, I, I didn't love New York. I liked it, but I didn't love living there, especially if I wasn't working on something. So I moved back to L.A. I had a little stint on RoboCop 2, started working at Disney Imagineering on a, on a redo of Tomorrowland, and then uh, the, the, the ABC deal, or sorry, the Disney deal was happening. So Jim said, I want to do this. And there was a dinosaur panel, so I'm going to go fast. I want to do a show about dinosaurs and dinosaur thinking, so I started designing dinosaurs with him. And the last meeting, we had two meetings in New York, and my last meeting was on a Friday, and he passed away like on a Monday night. So it was that fast. And people were like, what did he have? I'm like, he, I saw him on Friday. We had a two-and-a-half-hour meeting, and he sounded as good as you and I do right now. So that was really shocking for, obviously, not me. It's for the entire world. Um, but that was the last project we worked on. And uh, it developed at ABC, and, and it ran for four seasons. And on the last season of Dinosaurs, I started writing on Muppet Treasure Island. Well, what we do, again, the Henson Company maintained sort of the process that Jim had started, which was we'd all come together. And when I say we all, it was uh, Jerry Jewell, who was the head writer on the, the Muppet Show, won a bunch of Emmys for that. And he's the first person Jim Henson hired uh, as the Muppets um, was Jerry Jewell, and he was a initially a builder, performer, and writer, but he became head writer on the um, Muppet Show, and that's kind of what his title was. He was the, the writer. So it would be Jerry Jewell, Bill Prady, who went on to uh, graduate to create the Big Bang Theory. 
he was part of the team, uh, Michael Frith, and a, and a few other creatives, and we'd brainstorm. And one, of the, and so, again, after Jim had passed away, and we we're gonna, we we want to do a movie. So they'd done Christmas Carol, which was successful, and I liked it, but I thought it was way too sweet and charming. I'm like, I thought the Muppets were kind of an- anarchic and funny and crazy. So I was pitching like, let's do Mad Max, let's do, uh, you know, they're like, well, we want we, you know, it's 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 good to do classic literature. So I said, well, like a pirate movie. Because I, I, it's funny, because Pirates of the Caribbean blew my mind when I was a kid. So I loved pirate movies because of that ride. So I said, well, let's do a pirate movie with fighting skeletons and all the stuff that ended up being in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And, and they said, well, okay, but, you know, it's got to be based on something. I said, well, Treasure Island. So I researched it. Treasure Island had been done 13 times when we started writing a Muppet Treasure Island. So I said, well, let's do a crazy, like, it's the Muppets. Like, nobody's going to be like, that was unrealistic. <laughs> the pig princess would not have lived in an island because they were on the Tortugas, and that means turtle. No, we didn't have that. So uh, I found that out working on that movie. Tortuga is turtle, or tortoise. Um, so we started writing this. I said it started like uh, Treasure Island, the Robert Louis Stevenson book, and the, by the second half it became a, a Bob Hope, Ring, Bing Crosby road picture, and ended as a Ray Harryhausen Sinbad movie with giant tiki idols chasing, chasing him down to the beach and fighting. It had the uh, the wild wild boars, um, and so Jerry and I would would uh, work together. I would lay on his couch. I went up to him. He lived in Mendocino, which is like a little slice of heaven. It's the redwoods meet the ocean. And a beautiful house on the coast. So I would sit. We'd sit in his office, and I was. I rented an apartment or a little house like up the road. So every day I'd go drive to his house. I'd lay on the couch, and we'd just talk about the movie. And he, it was his computer, so he would write. And uh, that's sign language for writing on a computer. This would be on your phone. Um, just make sure he's paying attention. He knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're probably a much better thumb typist than QWERTY up, right? Good at any typing. <laughs> I actually like typing on the keyboard better. Really? You are a unicorn. It's more accurate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good for you. Thanks for ruining my anecdote. Um, <laughs> um, so we would write, and we did the first draft, which was this bananas thing, and they liked it. And Disney at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg liked it, but they wanted to bring in. Uh, kind of a script doctor type, a guy named uh, James V. Hart. was a lovely fellow. We never actually worked with him, but he took the script and he made it more like the book. So all the banana pants stuff in there, the cabin fever and Polly Lobster and the clueless Morgan, all that crazy Mr. Bimbo was all my contribution to the, the weirdness. <laughs> so if you see a Muppet thing and it's weird or really silly, that's me, probably. Well, from uh, Jim Henson now on. And so we made the movie, and with amazing casting, I, I really fought for Billy Connolly to be Billy Bones, because I was a huge fan of his humor, if you don't know who yeah. he is, a Scottish comic, who, <laughs> what was funny was, I was such a fan, I would do an impression of him when we were reading the script, you do read-throughs, you do it with the cast, you do it just to pitch it to the executives, so I'd read it like Billy Connolly, I'd do it like that, because that's how he talks. And so some of the puppeteers, because he wasn't really big in the United States, when they came, when Billy was hired in England, we were, we was about a month away from filming, Billy came in to do the read-through. We'd cast him, and I was really excited and happy. And so he read it like him, and one of the puppeteers came up to me, one of the main guys, he said, he sounds just like you. <laughs> he said, no, I, I sound, yeah. Um, but I won some battles in that with my silliness, because I just think the Muppets, it, the core should be silly, nice to each other and loving, but that's kind of baked into their character. So I was always fighting for, let's be, my, my term is banana pants, just really silly. And... Uh, 
So it, it was pretty successful. We had an amazing uh, musical writing team, uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. If you don't know their names, you certainly know their songs. Uh, since the 60s, they were really good friends with Carol King. And there's a play, actually, about Carol King, and they're like the guest stars in it. Um, but they wrote this amazing, and they were not Broadway song showwriters. They were pop song showwriters, like tons of Lionel Richie, and I think they wrote for the Carpenters and like good friends with Paul, Paul Simon, uh, not Paul Simon, um, Paul Williams, who wrote Rainbow Connection. And they wrote this hilarious score. And the way we worked them, which I've never worked, I'd never worked with songwriters that closely before, is we we had the script. We go, okay, like Cabin Fever was a perfect example. Typically, in movies, particularly literary ones, the second act can be really boring, like this conversation is right now. Um, and no, it's not boring. Just look at his coat. It's, it's not boring. This at is going no, not gonna, oh, hypnotize somebody. What? Stop! Yeah. Don't! Don't! Um, so we would have the segment saying, Cabin Fever, they're going bananas because they're in irons is what you actually call it when you're sailing. Uh, there's no wind, so you're just sitting there going nowhere. And the idea was, and it's in the book that they ran into this for like two weeks. They just, there was no wind and they sat there in the middle of the Caribbean, I suppose, or somewhere in the Atlantic heading towards the Caribbean. And I said, well, there's something called cabin fever, which you get when you're not going anywhere and you just kind of start hallucinating. So I said, well, let's do a song number. So we gave them some ideas like, you know, they, they don't, they're not going anywhere. They're afraid they're going to die. And just kind of, not song lyrics even, just ideas to the song is about. And they came back with that amazing song. And, and, you know, we were saying they go bananas. And so they actually put that in. You know, we've been in season long. We've flipped our bandanas. We're something like bananas. And so they would turn in these amazing songs, which would then inspire us to write stuff in the script to go along with the song. And then Brian, the director, would work with us. So it was a great uh, collaboration. And that's the last Muppet movie I wrote that got made. Um, I've written two others uh, since then. I wrote a Haunted House movie. I did four versions of a Haunted House movie, or I should say a Halloween movie with ghosts. There was a Ghostbusters kind of one. There was a Haunted House one. There was one where they actually, well, the Ghostbusters one is they, the Muppets get killed in the first act. Yes. <laughs> and, and the executive's like, you can't do that. I'm like, no, that's the whole thing. That's why we do it, because people are like, what? You killed them? And the whole point of the movie was they had to get back to being alive again because it was a curse. They were they were crushed by a bookshelf, but they were it was done by a ghost who was stealing their essence to so he could become alive and marry Miss Piggy. He'd fall in love with Miss Piggy, and so that, he that, had, that tracks. It yeah. totally tracks. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's a it's, it's funny because the Disney haunted mansion movie stole some ideas. One of the ideas was there was a portrait of this ghost's lovely wife, and it was Miss Piggy. Like, in, uh, if you've seen her, is, is a Pinky, Pinky and Blue Boy, you've seen her like all done up like a 1820s painting. So that was that in the living room. And so when they see it, they're like, oh my God, that looks just like Miss Piggy. Of course, she doesn't see it. But the ghost then kills like Gonzo Kermit, Fozzie, uh, Bunsen and Peek or something, and uses their life essence. He doesn't kill them, but he steals their life essence. So right. essentially, they're dead and they become ghosts. So they have to go to ghost training school and learn how to be. Yeah, it was really silly and we really loved it. And, Thank uh, you for coming here tonight and torturing <laughs> us with this thing we'll never see. Yeah, well, that's sad. Actually, you won't because Disney, Disney can't make it because then they'd have to pay the Henson Company because they spent the money to develop it. Uh, and Disney uh, hates spending money on Muppets. Um, when my name's involved, I found out. Um, anyway, so I did two or three. I did a Haunted House one, which is more about a... a the, actually, the, there's a video game they made out of the first one we did. I think it's called Muppet Haunted Mansion. Yeah. Okay, so that was based on the plot that the Muppets become classic movie monsters and have to get changed back. So anyway, uh, I did a bunch of stuff that nobody ever saw, and then, <laughs> but I got paid, and it was fun to do. And I worked on a bad sitcom 
that I designed the characters for, but wasn't particularly happy. It was called Aliens in the Family. I think they made like, yeah, five, five episodes. Um, and the writers didn't, they wanted it to be campy, and I think it killed the humor. Um, yeah, yeah. And they were just like, oh, honey, uh, you crazy alien girl. Um, and it just played like, oh, okay, it's, it's all a joke. Um, and then Muppets Tonight happened, which was fun, and Clifford and Pepe was created there, which was, uh, yeah, one of my favorites. He's so fun to write for because he's a jerk. What was that? <laughs> Chip. Chip? Well, Chip was actually from Muppets. Oh, you're right. Uh, uh, the Jim Henson Hour. Yeah, it's no. What's that? Chip is frightening. Chip, well, okay, so here's an insight. The Chip was based, he's a parody of Bill Prady. He's a caricature of Bill Prady. Yeah. yeah. His pupils blink. That was my idea. I said, we, <laughs> I know, but I said we have these puppets that, you know, they don't, their eyes don't do anything, and we didn't want to get into the big IMAX, but what if they blink? Like, I thought of Chuck Jones' characters where they have little beady eyes, and they go, blink, blink. Yeah. So that's when I was still designing. I'm like, let's make these little clicky eyes. That, so he has that weird, like, stare that never goes away. So it's a, it's a physical mechanism? It's actually, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a smaller ball and a bigger ball, and it just clicks down. It's, it's got the black on it normally, and it just clicks onto white, so it just looks like his eyes disappear for a second. That's not creepy. Um, I don't know why you guys think that's creepy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of giving you the brief, briefer timeline. Uh, the Muppets Tonight, which was fun. Every time a Muppet show goes on the air, the network executive changes hands and they kill it. So that happened there. Jamie Tarsus took over after 10 episodes aired. And she brought Dick Bosucci, who was the showrunner, and I in and said... We like the show. It's fun. But how are you going to get males 18 to 35? And I said, straight males? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. And I said, that's the toughest audience for us. They want to watch football, drink beer, and sports cars. Like, the Muppets is not their thing. Like, we would do, it was hilarious. we do these test groups. You know, we bring in, like, a group like this, maybe about half the room, and it'd be, a, you know, a little bit of everybody. And everyone would give us high numbers, except for straight men 18 to 35. They're just like, oh, it's for kids. They just, whatever, didn't like it. So... We tried to dance around. I said, we have Michelle Pfeiffer. We have Heather Locke. You know, we have cute women guests, and we make funny jokes. And it, anyway, they killed it. They didn't even run the second season. Ended up on the Disney Channel. But we won Emmys for Best Kids Show, which was kind of great and also a little hurt, you know, hurt a little bit because we didn't write it as a kid show. But even right. The Muppet Show originally was considered a kid show by, uh, by most people. And then we started. I started doing uh, the TV movies. So don't throw tomatoes, because I didn't write them. <laughs> I did Very Merry Muppet Christmas, and three years later, Muppets Wizard of Oz, which there's casting issues. Um, did not want the person who played Dorothy to, she's a lovely person, but wasn't really ready to do that job as an actress, but that, the network wanted her. Um, so directed those, and then started, well then did uh, oh, uh, a Muppets... Uh, Letters to Santa, which was written by Paul Williams. The original outline uh, was Paul Williams, who wrote Rainbow Connection and a bunch of Carpenter's hits. And he's a friend of the Muppets. Um, and so he came in with this idea, and they hired two writers, and, and we made that. That was a 60-minute, just an hour-long special for TV. And so the TV budgets are, let's put it this way, for what they made the first new Muppet movie, the, was it just called The Muppets? or Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Here come the Muppets, I called it. Um, so we could have made six TV specials for what they made that one move for. All my budget started, the first one was ten, then it went to eight, then it went to six, and then it went to three. So they just kept getting smaller and smaller, but still it was 90 minutes usually, except for the last one. Uh, so it was tough, you know, and people like criticize it, and I get it. They're not high art, but uh, we had really tight schedules and budgets. 
um, which you can't put at the beginning of the film. <laughs> um, this is a TV movie, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, they don't let you do that. Um, uh, what's that? You want to join us? You come up here, sassy fans? Of course it's the redhead. Yeah. No, um, actually, she's not allowed on anything that I'm recording. Let's not air dirty laundry. <laughs> Let's just take off our dirty laundry. <laughs> and then it got weird. Um, got to get it dirty first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> See, you make me look normal. Thank you. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Um, so that pretty much brings us up to the late 2000s, and I started doing all the um, uh, viral well, they viral videos. They liked them to be viral, but the one that really won <laughs> the internet was uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And uh, we shot that in one day, which you've seen it. Again, I brought this stuff, but it's, it's not being able to download. But you can see it on YouTube. I think we're up to like 55 million views, which for a Muppet thing is pretty good. Um, and did a bunch of silly ones, Stand By Me, which is one of my favorites, Big Mean Carl eating oh, bunnies. Yeah. yeah, that to me, that, that was my idea for a song, and I just, I love Big Mean Carl because he's a one-known character. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carl! And he eats you. Um, real easy to write for. I guess I'm just lazy. Uh, I guess I am lazy. Uh, and then um, the Creature Shop Challenge happened, which was really fun. I was telling someone today it was the best job I ever had because I came in for one day a week, for about 12 hours, a long day, and gave my opinion, and people listened to me, and then I went home and got a check. <laughs> I told Brian, I said, wow, now I know what it's like to be you. <laughs> Not as a director, as a producer. I was teasing him, of course, but it was a great job, because uh, the people were so talented, and uh, impossible tasks they gave them. You have two days to build an entire creature suit, you know, and you're going to team you up with someone who hates you. Um <laughs> I'm, well, you saw it if you did see it. Yeah, yeah. There was not, and there's really only that one. I hate to call them a couple, but they just were not a good mix. And I think the producers knew that, and so they would pair them up. That show, people asked if it was scripted or, or um, cons- you know, uh, designed at all. It was not. It was literally we would. They were so because I guess there's big lawsuits that could happen. They were so meticulous about it when when we were filming and we break for lunch, they would put up a wall of just, you know, black duvetine, black cloth to walk the contestants out so we couldn't, they couldn't make eye contact with us to, like, wink at us and make us fall in love with them. I don't know what they were worried about. <laughs> no, it was really weird. And one time we were eating lunch just out in the outdoor kind of dining area because it's L.A. and you can eat outdoors all the time. And they were walking them to wherever, their lunch area, and they said, okay, judges, please look over there. Look over there. We're like, well, what's going on? Don't look! And just, they were walking him to a bus or something. It was really bizarre, but... Um, so there was no shenanigans in, in that in that way, because people ask me that, oh, it's a reality show. It actually, was, that was pretty real. Um, and that brings us up to about three years ago, and then I did Turkey Hollow three years ago. Um, I have some pictures. Can we show the Turkey Hollow stuff? I think there's like five behind-the-scenes photos. There it is. So, okay, that's, they're not in order. This is the puppeteers. This is a joking. See, look what an easy job it is. <laughs> go, go to the next one. If you could just scroll through the pictures. And it was an easy job because... Oh, there you go. Fancy. Because I buried them alive. <laughs> we literally... Those boards, there were three more boards that went over them, and we covered them with... Uh, a tarp and covered it with dirt and those four holes there where their arms came out they were underground for about 45 minutes to an hour with no we had a little kind of gap 
off-camera shot. If you've seen the movie, it's when the four creatures are eating the wall, eating away the rocks that the, the building they were trying to get into was made of because they eat rocks. And uh, so those guys had dust masks on. That's a wider shot, and I think I think that's it. I don't think there's a shot because the video clip and there's there's Mary Steenburgen and I with the with the creatures. If you hadn't seen it. So that was based on a, an outline that Jim had written in 1967 or 68 with Jerry Jewell to do an hour-long TV special. And it was the first time they were going to use creatures made of fur with glass eyes. So it was like dark. It wasn't like bright green and yellow and like Sesame Street. It was going to be more realistic. So we took that idea and made them kind of contemporary creature shop realistic, not 1968 Muppets realistic. And uh, it was fun. It was sweet. It was for... Um, the uh, Lifetime Channel, which is not not a comedy network, <laughs> and it, they don't think of themselves as a comedy network. But they said, "Well, we hired you to, you know, because we wanted to be funny." And then they killed comedy. That I mean, it was nothing inappropriate. It wasn't, you know, my normal sensibilities. It wasn't even silly. They just wanted it to be more heartwarming. Um, so again, I'm not, you know, I'm proud of it for what it was. But uh, it was fun to do, and Mary Steenburgen was delightful. She's the reason it got made. She. She loved Jim Henson and loved the Muppets, and so she was very excited to work on it. And after that was the Hollywood Bowl, which was last year. And there's one clip I have. I'll set it up first. Um, so the Hollywood Bowl is a live show. It's basically what the Muppets would be like if you went and saw the Muppet Show live, and we weren't trying to hide the puppeteers. So, yeah, don't, don't play the clip yet. Um, and so we did it last summer. Uh, and our guest host was Bobby Moynihan, who's delightful from SNL. He's a human Muppet and has become a very good friend. Um, and it got great, great reviews. In fact, I was told we, we did a, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday show. By Saturday afternoon, uh, Debbie, who runs the Muppets at Disney, had gotten two or three calls from the O2 Radio City Music Hall and some other big venue about when can we get the show. So. Um, which was great and, and really heartwarming. The thing is, it's not a, it, this is the business side of things, which maybe you don't care about, but if you run a show for three nights that size with that big of, when we went to London, we flew out 65 people, um, 68 people. It, it just doesn't make money unless you run it for like six weeks, eight weeks, where, you know, it's the same thing. And But we had to put all these people up because half the crew was from, uh, well, London, everyone was not from London, but... It's an expensive show to do, and I was told they lost money on it, but it was a great kind of welcoming back of what I consider the Muppets. And it wasn't... It, it, <laughs> I don't want to sound snarky, so I'm going to take a drink. That's not going to help. <laughs> Shut up! Oh, my God. Um, no. The people who wrote the Muppets, the, the new sitcom, lovely people, Bill Prady was a friend, but they were sitcom writers. They weren't Muppet writers. It's an odd job writing for the Muppets. It's sort of like herding cattle is not the same as raising crickets. Right. <laughs> Which is this. Exactly. Cattle are big, easy to move. You can, yeah, crickets go bananas and go everywhere. But the way networks, this is, again, probably more than you care to know, but networks think in terms of they wrote a funny show. They wrote New Girl. They wrote, you know, uh, whatever the last three hit sitcoms were. We'll have them write for the Muppets. But it's a very specific, writing for puppets is a very specific kind of comedy. Part of it is very physical, and part of it, when you read it, doesn't read funny. Um, it, one of the examples, because I just remember, because I was told by Frank Oz that's not funny, and then he did it because he didn't tank the read. Was Mr. Bimbo? Um, and again, this is just my personal experience, but it's happened to every writer. But with Mr. Bimbo in, in Muppet Treasure Island. 
he's the, the little man that lives in his finger. And uh, the idea was that Fozzie was kind of a soft-headed rich kid who didn't really deal with reality because he didn't because his daddy was rich. So he had his little friend because he was a lonely child. We had a whole backstory as why he had a little man who lived in his finger. But Frank read it and goes, so he's crazy. <laughs> We're like, yeah, he's crazy. He's, he's a trust fund kid who doesn't deal with reality. So his best friend is he spent a lot of hours by himself as his man, Mr. Pimple, is his finger. And Frank read it, and it got huge laughs. He goes, all right, well, got a laugh, so we'll, we'll keep it. Um, but that's what I mean. It's very specific. Even Frank Oz, who hates lots of dialogue, like his first thing, when Frank reads a script, he's like, too many words. It just starts crossing out dialogue. <laughs> you know, dialogue you've spent months on. Um, so the new Muppet Show was very, very dialogue-y, and it was written for, you know, like a, the cast of New Girl or The Office. So, yeah, it very much was like The Office. And that's not to say it wasn't funny. It just doesn't work with the Muppets, particularly what people were expecting. So what we did with the, uh, the Hollywood Bowl show was to say, let's just go back. So it was Jim Lewis and I, who are the two last two surviving Muppet writers who work, worked with Jim Henson, and uh, two guys with this company, Soapbox, who does all our uh, viral videos. They're a great uh, small production company in L.A. Uh, Andrew Williams, who's their vice president. I think, yeah, he's the vice president of like creative affairs, and uh, he's a writer and a director also. And then um, Matthew Barnett, who's the, their kind of staff writer. So the four of us wrote it, and Jim and I kind of wrote Herd on it and said we wanted to be like the Muppet Show, like really silly and kind of daffy and showing off the characters what they do well. And the audiences went nuts, like the Muppets are back. For every job I worked on, they say, the Muppets are back. <laughs> um, and so they loved it so much that they've now hired uh, sitcom writers to write a new Muppet Show. <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm not Oh, wait. Yeah. No. Uh, and so then they loved it, and we got to do the O2. And what's different, people ask, is the same show. It was the same structure, but a number of things we made different to appeal to the British audience. And one of it was, instead of a Star Trek kind of Star Wars parody with Pigs in Space, we did a Doctor Who parody. And Bo Brown, who runs the puppet, or one of the puppet track people uh, on this, Asked if we could show, I don't know who requested it, the clip of the Muppets. It was Bo. It was Bo. Yeah, okay, was Bo. I thought it was Bo, but uh, it, the re regenerating uh, into the, all every iteration of Doctor Who. So that's the clip I have. I don't know if there's audio with it. There should be, but. Do we want to bring the lights down a little bit before we before we run it? It's it's like a 30 second clip, so don't get too excited. <laughs> We're going to build it. We're going to build this. Yes. Up. In a time. In a world. <laughs> Three, two, one. So that's Link is Link, and then he's in the regeneration chamber. <laughs> There's some good casting, I thought. Yeah. Oh, it's not supposed to stop there. You sure? I'm positive. <laughs> I saw it three times in London. This did not happen. You have, I think, three more doctors. Here we go. Oh my god. Oh. It's not Disney. This clip really likes Uncle Deadly. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh. Now you can Kick it. Just kick it. We pay for it. Wait. But the sound 
rehearsed it. Yes. It's a All nice right. Well, sound effect. it's a great sound really effect. Good. Um, what it ends up is uh, we. Uh, Yes, Miss Piggy is the last one because with the short hair who's playing the new doctor. And she looks at herself and she goes like, oh, what, what's her first line? The actual doctor. She's like, brilliant. That's it. So Miss Piggy goes, brilliant. And then disappears back on set. And so the puppet pops up with this new short wig. But it's Link. So Link is now the new doctor and Piggy's there. And, and Piggy goes, oh, I like her. And then Strange Park is like, which one of you wants to go out with me? And they then we end the show. <laughs> or end, end the sketch. So it was silly and it was a lot of fun. And, and we had two of the Doctor Who's on, as part of the show. We had Dave Tennant and um, oh, what's Peter Davidson. Yes, thank you. And they were great and had a blast. So that brings us up pretty much to now. And now we can talk about anything you want to ask or we'll go to questions. I actually was wondering about design a little bit. Yeah. Because you were talking about designing characters. Uh, but when you're coming up with that... You know, obviously, the physical reality of a puppet has to enter into it. Mm. So when when you you know you get a great idea, but then you start looking at it and you think, well, we have to actually make these eyes work. We have to make this mouth work. Like, how does that process go? Well, I you know I learned from a guy who was talking about Jim Henson. I, I started when I started designing for him. Again, if I had these drawings, you could see something, but. Um, that wasn't snarky. I was just saying, for example, <laughs> um, uh, Jim said that's a. He would say that's a great design, but it's not a good puppet or good hand puppet. He said you need. It's basically this dimension here. You can't really change. You can make it longer. You can have like an alligator, but if you draw something with a huge jaw, it just gets lost. So it was just the mechanics. It's like designing a car. You know, you can't put the wheel wells too short. The wheels can't make a hard turn. So it, it's kind of once you realize what the limitations are or what the issues are, they're not necessarily limitations, you design accordingly. So the first year I was working with him, he would kind of, you know, gently guide me and say, that's great, Like, but maybe make the jaw smaller or the eyes farther apart. Um, so that's one thing for, for puppets and hand puppets in particular. Like creatures, you have a lot more leeway now. Um... But uh, what I always tried to do, and I think what Jim liked about my designs, was I put character in the design. It, it's, it, you basically learn that in animation. If any of you have done animation design, like you always talk about the silhouette. Like the silhouette you should read, oh, that's an angry penguin or a fat alligator, just in a black, literally a, like a cutout silhouette. So I tried to do the same thing with a puppet. It's not as animated, to, you know, use an expression, but it's it's... If he's an angry character, or he's you know characters from dinosaurs. I mean, the baby was kind of impish, so he had these big eyes and this little you know kind of cute like little you. mouth. He looked like me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> really? I've not gotten that. <laughs> Lou Albano, I've gotten twice today. <laughs> this is a this is a wrestling heavy year. Ah, uh, yeah, crazy. Um, so. Uh, that's what I would always approach is like what is the character first not what's the design um, and I see a lot and this is just me on a soapbox a lot with ZBrush now particular CG design people go bananas on the details and you know you can sculpt that you can zoom in on the pores pores you know and you see these amazing designs but they're either incredibly busy like I don't know where to look you know it looks like one of the examples of the Transformers the new Transformers movies I mean they're just so detailed and it's amazing, and it's, you know, computer guys going, look what I can do. And it's it, technically amazing, but you kind of get lost in it. You don't know um, who's who. They all look the yeah, same. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Jim talked about that. He said one of the problems with Fraggle Rock, I mentioned earlier in the panel, I think on Dinosaurs, was that 
their mistake was making them all the same, essentially, except, look, she's got yellow pom-poms and he's got red. Um, so we that was one of the things, because he had just finished kind of creating Fraggle Rock when I started with him. It was like 86, 87. And, and so we talked about colors, and that's why the dinosaurs, somebody asked today, why are they all different? I said, because you would be able to tell them apart even in a silhouette. Like, that's Robbie, that's Charlene, that's the dad, that's the mom. Um, so specifically with puppets, those are the two things. What is the character? Because, like, Pepe the Prawn, if you look at him... Yeah, King Prawn, okay. Uh, if you look at him, he's not angry, but he's got this pugnacious, this is the word I would use, lower lip. He, he looks like that. So he already looks like he's ready for a fight. And it's subtle, and he's got those beady eyes. So you already know a guy, like, he's... But what, and then what's funny is you play against that. Like, he thinks he's a great lover, or he's an amazing artist. Um, but he's, you know, blessed with that face. So sometimes you play against type, you know, you don't want every, if, if, you, if you kind of do it, what I like to say, two on the nose, then it gets boring, you know. Uh, or maybe you don't know, you asked. <laughs> so does that answer your question in the yeah, design process? Yeah, well, and, and also, did you get to a point where elements that wouldn't necessarily work in a physical puppet, it just kind of didn't show up anymore. Like, you just sort of knew... Oh, as for me as a designer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was mainly the jaw thing and eye spacing were the two things. And then you, part of the design... Can you hear me? Is that... Okay. Part of the design process is at live hands, like uh, Bunsen and Beaker both have live hands, where it's a second performer, the Swedish chef. Um, Kermit, Gonzo... Piggy, I'll have rod arms. You guys puppet track, assume you know what I mean. So that's part of it. Is it going to be live hand? Does it have to do like Bunsen, Beaker, or Chef? They're going to do a lot of hand gags. So it's really important for them to have live hands. Right. Piggy just basically minces around and goes like this. So she doesn't, you know, she holds a feather bow or a glass of champagne. Um, so she doesn't need that uh, manipulability. Manipulabili- okay. Just gonna, <laughs> one more. She's going to finish more. it. And just say, she can't move her hands a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, that's part of the process of no. What's funny is it translates over into writing. I think all the arts have a core process. At least the way I approach them is: you start rough and you refine and you refine and you refine. And that's with an idea for a movie or a book or a sculpture. You start sculpture and painting. I, I, I was trained as a painter originally. Yeah, I went trained. I mean, I took Sunday classes with my dad's secretary. who was an oil painting teacher. I was not formally trained in anything except being an idiot. Um, and, and I was self-taught by that. The biggest idiot I know. Um, and Monty Python and Steve Martin. Um, yeah, those were my touchstones. And so the Muppets were kind of like... To me, the Muppets were Monty Python with puppetry. And that's how I've always felt. People like, oh, it's a kid show. I'm like, no, it's Monty. Monty Python was, a, it was my favorite show when I was 10 to 14. Yeah. But it wasn't a kid's show. So that's how I always think of the uh, of puppets, but particularly the Muppets. Um, what the hell was I talking about? We started with design. Design. But we were going... Oh, the I, writing. I, I was saying that all the arts kind of relate to each other. So even with writing, you have to know what a puppet can do. Like the first thing when we get a new writer who's, you know, the, the studio or whoever, the network likes them and say, oh, you're going to write a Muppet script. And they go, Miss Piggy bats her eyelashes as she walks up the stairs. And you're like, okay, that's a day shoot right there. Because she doesn't have eyelashes that move. And they're like, what? Doesn't she go, ah. I'm like, no, she goes, <laughs> that's all she can do. It's a really good performer, as you guys probably know, as puppeteers, a lot of you. You can get, I mean, Frank Oz is literally like a piano master with his hand. Um, people think she winks and she blinks and flutters her eyes. She doesn't do any of that. She's yeah. literally a, that's her face. Um, 
on a good day. Uh, don't tell her I said that. Um, so uh, what you're writing then, and then walking up and down stairs is just, impo- I mean, it's really a whole rig. You have to build the set right. So so we'll talk to new writers sometimes, say, does she, can she just already be in the room at the bottom of the stair? Like, just take one last step and then walk across the room. And instead of flooding her eyelids, can she, you know, kind of wave them on, whatever. And it, very often they balk saying, well, isn't that up to the performer? It's like, yeah, it is. So don't, then don't put it in the script as a script point. So again, you, there's, and that was the problem a lot with um, the, the new shows. The writers were just sitcom writers, so they would write things that weren't necessarily, and they weren't bad for puppets, they just don't do it very well. Like sitting and doing a lot of dialogue, just puppets talking. Frank Oz said this like, like the second time I met him when I was a writer. He said, puppets talking, doing pages dialogues is the most boring scene, the most boring thing in the world. I'm just boring you talking about puppets talking. <laughs> um, so that's, I think, if, if any of you are writing puppet scripts, keep it physical, keep it moving. I mean, again, you could do, you want to do, I'm talking about comedy, I guess. Um, people do lovely dramas with puppets, too. It's just not the world I, I, I work in. These guys, I, you were talking Bunraku in, in Japan. Like, some of you guys are so deep into the art of puppetry, I'm really impressed by that and Jim was a huge fan he supported all these different um, puppetry art festivals and he, he took me to a couple uh, Julie Taymor you guys probably know we saw her when she was just doing weird Broadway plays with Poe before Lion King um, doing weird like Latin American tales of a boy who turned into a jaguar Juan Darien and it was amazing and just very it wasn't a comedy at all there was nothing funny in it but um, he loved just puppetry all over the fact it wasn't just kids shows and, and, and Muppets but yeah, it's a very specific craft, as you guys mostly know, and it requires specific techniques for writing and performing and building and designing. As far as just entertaining goes, what are some lessons that you learned from Jim Henson? I mean, because the, oh. the technical stuff, the yeah. puppetry and design and everything is... Well, there's obviously. the spectacle of puppetry, and Brian talked a little bit about this today. He said what's fun about puppets is that they're doing this in the real world, and you're in on the joke. Like Menomina, to me, is just a classic example of... It's probably the most famous Muppet thing that anyone who doesn't even speak English would know. Because it's literally this. It's far and away. You know, it's Grover from Sesame Street going, close, far, but with a catchy song. And that's what... When I was saying earlier about the physicality of puppets doing just dumb things that either, you know, riding a bike blew people away in 1980 um, for like and then they doubled down and uh, was it uh, Take Manhattan? It was like six minutes of Muppets riding bikes. Um, so there's a spectacle to it but you're in on the joke. You're going, ah, they can't do that and then it's, how do they do that? And it takes you, in some ways, out of the movie but it's, it's in, I was told by a guy that works at Pixar, they call that fun and games. Just the joy of animation, the joy of a crazy chase scene, the joy of whatever, the, whatever. It has to feed the story and the plot, but it's the fun of the medium. In animation, it could be people blowing up and you know, doing that with Muppets. It could be people being thrown across the room. Even dinosaurs, you know, we would throw the baby across the room or he'd bite tails or, um, you know, Roy Hess with his tiny little arms. It's just funny <laughs> because it looks funny and it's not like, you know, we're not doing Ibsen plays. We're just doing... Uh, but again, you have to have that mindset. It, it isn't... Um, and, and a friend of mine, David Silverman, is one of the main guys who made The Simpsons an animated series. And, and he would talk, because all those writers are sitcom, like dialogue writers, and, and they would just write basically radio plays 
And so David, what he really brought to it, and I think gets some credit, but probably not as much, is he made it physically, fun, visually funny. Like Bart getting choked when his tongue's over here and his eyeballs are crossed over here and his head's bent like a U-shape, going, ah, you know. That's David. It wasn't in the writers didn't write oh, that. Wow. So animation is very similar. There's a physicality to it, uh, that, uh, a visual aspect. And with the puppets, you get the double uh, whammy of people know that that's real. It's not CG. It's not, oh, it's it's like magic on TV is not that interesting because you're like, well, yeah, it's on TV. You can make an elephant disappear. I can see Godzilla walk over the, the building. So magic works live. I mean, really to impress you, if, if I were here and suddenly he disappeared and, you know, I lift up the table and you're like, that's amazing. But if we did it on TV, they're like, oh, you just stop tape or you, whatever. He had a blue screen in front of him. Uh, so I think it's it's that part of the spectacle of, of puppetry that um, is inherent in, in the creation of it and why people laugh at things that aren't, again, on the page. Well, again, uh, again, talking things I did, uh, Muppet Treasure Island, when Billy uh, Bones grabs Gonzo's nose and, or Gonzo, what is it? He says, Jimmy, Jim, 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 and grabs Gonzo's nose. And Gonzo goes, I'm not Jimmy, Jim, 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 I'm not Jimmy, Jim, Jim, he's Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. And then Billy turns to the boy and grabs him and goes, Jimmy, Jim, 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 and it's stupid. And it re- and people are like, that's, that's not funny. I'm like, just, just let Billy Connolly say it, let Gonzo say it. <laughs> These are funny people, and, it'll be, and it was funny. And I don't know why, it's just funny to me. So I go, well, it made me laugh. But, you know, that's every, that's every comedy writer's defense. It made me laugh. Um, uh, but there's, and there's a certain non-cynical aspect kind of the joy of existence, the joy of movement that puppets have, or the Muppets have. And not, you know, the, the Muppets are their own thing, not to say all puppets, <laughs> it's joy of movement, but I think uh, there's a underlying pleasure you get out of that. Seeing Kermit go, I mean, that's not funny. If I write, a frog waves his arms and says, yay, you're like, oh my god, that's hilarious. And so that that is a big problem. You write a, a puppet script or a Muppet script, and people are like, it's not really that funny. I'm like, you just you visualize it. Because yeah. I'm a, again, I start as a painter, I'm very visual when I write. So it, it, it's a help in my case. We're, we love, we're fascinated by the illusion of life. Yes. Like, I think that's yeah. something humanity wise, like, yeah. we're all very compelled by that, and puppetry captures that in a way Absolutely. that nothing else does. Yeah. So when Kermit, you know, yes, it's, it's a pile of green felt, but when we see that motion, you're not thinking about the guy making it happen. No. You're look, you want this character to be doing the thing that he's doing. Well, I've got a great story about how successful it is. So Snoop Dogg was was a guest star. I know it's like, how is this? Where's this going? Uh, was a guest star in the first Muppet movie I directed, uh, a, a very merry Muppet Christmas movie. And he was just going to show up at the stage and hang out like he knew the guys in the band. And suddenly we're going to cut back to him. It was going to be all smoky, and it was funny. So, but why? Why? Well, because Snoop enjoys smoking. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's legal now, so it's okay. Uh, no, so, uh, oh, not here? Okay, well, he's not here. So, but we were warned, like, Snoop comes with a posse of, like, eight to ten guys. Sure. And, and he literally did. He had a guy named Bishop Don who was all decked out in green with emeralds in his teeth. He was a pimp, like a pimp preacher. Yeah, the cup. I he signed a book to me. He 
brought his autobiography, <laughs> Bishop Don, and he signed it to Muppet Director in, Van- in, in, in Vancouver, <laughs> Bishop Don. Like, he was sitting behind me, my name is on the back of my chair. <laughs> Kirk Thatcher, Director. Yeah, anyway. So Snoop shows up, and he's really cool. I, I gotta kind of act this out. So he walks in, and Steve Whitmire was doing Kermit at the time, and or, like had it like this. Snoop walks in, we're like, "Hey, Snoop!" So here's the scene, and and here's Kermit, and, and Steve just raises up Kermit, and goes, "Oh, hey, Snoop!" And, <laughs> and 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 Snoop walks in with his guys. He's like, "Oh, hey, man, yeah, it's nice." You know, he's very cool, not not egotistical, but just very laid back and cool. So Kermit pops up and says hi, and Snoop goes, "Oh man, oh, Kermit, oh dude!" And he lost his. Shiz, as he would call it. He went, he was literally nine years old, and he said, I've been watching you since I was nine years old, man. Oh, oh, he just was giggling and like crying. He, he literally buckled, I'm not exaggerating, that's probably even not as strong. And it was so charming. And Steve Whitmore's standing right next to him. It's right, like, right. if I had Kermit right here, you started crying and wet your pants. I would, though. Yeah. I would. Well, and again, Kermit was iconic at this point. It was like the year 2002. But the power of, like you said, a bag of felt with two ping pong balls on it yeah. because of the performance and, and the personality behind it. And, and Snoop was probably high as a kite, so <laughs> he lost any filters he might have had. And we shot the scene, and it was great, and it was funny, and it was, again, like, you know, the kids would just be like, oh, that's smoky, because no one was ever smoking anything. And he was riffing with the band, and I don't know, there's some innuendo jokes about uh, the use of uh, certain herbs. And uh, we shot, and it, but the, the main problem was, and then it got cut out, but uh, people said, oh, you know, it's because he was uh, Snoop Dogg, or the Muppets chicken out. It's like, no, the <laughs> The script was 120 pages. It was only supposed to be an 88-minute movie. So I had to cut 42 minutes out of it. And his scene was just a fun scene, so it had to go. But then we found out that he was producing porn under his own label. So we would have had to cut it anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so that was... I don't understand why anybody would be particular about such a thing. I know. Well, nowadays, it all anything goes. Um, But back then, in the old days... uh, So, yeah, that. but to prove the point of the coolest person we've ever worked with who you would not think would lose it over seeing Kermit, particularly with the performer standing right next to him, but it's it's so powerful. Um, the other story that Jim told me was he was, one of the first times he was on Carson and, and he wasn't hiding behind the couch. He was sitting there and he just had Kermit. He's like, oh, Johnny, and then Johnny would talk to him and laugh and so they went to the commercial break, and the producer, Freddie Cordova, came over and said, uh, Jim, when you're, when you're doing Kermit, could you speak up a little bit? And Jim's like, well, it's the same voice I'm using right now. I don't, I don't change my voice. He goes, yeah, but when Kermit's talking, for some reason, the, the, the voice drops down. And Jim's like, well, okay, I'm not sure why, because I really am just like, I'm not doing a, lip, a ventriloquist act. I'm just talking, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. And so they came back from commercial, and they start rolling, and Jim's like looking around saying, and he noticed that this is the old days of TV where the boom mic was on uh, a little gimbal, and the boom operator just worked two pulleys, and would, so he was booming Kermit. He was boom micing Jim's hand. So he went from like, well, that's right, Johnny, what does Kermit think? <laughs> so Jim had a laugh, and, and the boom guy was mortified. He was so embarrassed. But again, this is a, a hardened Hollywood veteran who just, the reality is, oh, the, the frog's talking, the man's talking. 
beautiful. So, and yeah, I mean, and you see it with kids all the time, but it's great when it happens with adults, you know? And it is, yeah. it is the power of those characters and puppetry. Well, to wrap up. What? I know. You are a man who. Well, that's has debatable. Follow- <laughs> you followed your dreams. Uh, and in the short time that I've known you, you, you're an inspiration. Oh, thank you. It's I've been, like I said, I'm very lucky. Timing and not a social life until I was 21. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in my garage making puppets and monsters and movies. Are there any questions burning? But I mean, we, we don't have much time, I guess. Uh, uh, in the back with the sunglasses. Uh, in 1986, you portrayed a character called Punk Rock Guy in the Yes. 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 I did. How did that come about, and will Punk Rock Guy and the Bug be appearing in Spider-Man Far From Home? Or in a DC movie. I want to get in every friend, every universe. Um, that's all because Kevin Feige, when I met him at Comic-Con three years ago, that was introduced by a mutual friend, and it was, I thought my friend was having me on because I went to the Marvel after party. It was a small event, maybe 30 people. So my buddy brings us in. It was with Dave Silverman, the, the Simpsons director. And he goes, this is David Silverman, the director. And he's like, hey, Dave. And then he says, this is Kirk Thatcher from uh, the Muppets. And, you know, like that. But Kevin Feige stands up, beelines right towards me. He goes, wait, are you the Kirk Thatcher? And I was like, what? yeah, well, I, I get, yeah. And he goes, wait, Kirk Thatcher from Star Trek IV is the associate producer wrote, I hate you, and sang it. And I'm like, yeah. And he puts out his hand, he goes, you're the reason I got into film business. <laughs> and I'm like, and I, so my friend is standing right there. I'm like, <laughs> I'm literally thinking, where's the kid? Like, come on, you're, you're punking. I literally think I said, you're punking me. And he was dead serious. He's like, no, I was 13 years old. I saw Star Trek IV. I saw your name in the credits doing all this cool stuff. He said, I want to do that. I want to be a producer. It was, it was such a weird job. I was associate producer on it. But um, so it happened. That's the long version. It's Kevin. I was in a meeting pitching to direct a Marvel movie with them. And... Uh, he said he had to. He was late for the meeting. He had to leave early because he was catching a plane to New York. I said, "Oh, I'm going to New York on on Friday." He goes, "Wait, you're going to be in New York this weekend?" I'm like, "Yeah." I said, "We're shooting the last few scenes of Spider-Man. We should. You should be in the movie. You, you should be the punk. You be the punk on the street." And I'm like, "What?" He's like, he's "Talk to the producers. You know, he's a classic guy who runs a studio. He's like, yeah, they'll make it happen." And he leaves. So I get a call the next day. I had to move my flight from Friday morning to Thursday night, and this all happened in three days. So the next day, the producer called me and said, well, we got a, a ticket for you. Um, oh, no, they didn't have a ticket for me. We have um, a, a time for you to show up on set Friday morning. It's 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> so I literally flew in, got into JFK at like 12.30 at night, put my stuff in my hotel room, slept for two hours, showed up on set, and I brought my own clothes because it was basically like a homeless... The idea was it's a punk 35 years later who is now a homeless crazy person in New York with the boombox yelling at Spider-Man. So that was all because the head of the company got his wish and crammed me in a movie three days after he thought of it in the room. So, yeah, I had a weird career. And I've, I've made, I think, $700 off that little cameo. Yeah. Yeah, and bought me a couple drinks tonight. And a nice hat. And a lovely hat, yeah. Oh, there was, a, a, you had a question. Yeah, I had a question. Um, so, dinosaurs, and this may have been answered earlier, but I was going to know your panel. Dinosaurs got ended and then got continued, right? No, Because just there ended. was the ending with, like, was, the world ending. Yeah, the snow falling. It didn't really, world didn't end, but the snow fall. Right, so I guess what happened with the continuation ending, or what do you know about what happened? 
there is no, there's nothing happened. <laughs> there, that was it. So like the world ended and like all the power went out and stayed out. Right, and they were snowing outside and, and Earl then, says, well, I've been around for millions of years and I'm sure. And then now. they rewrote a few weeks later, right? Okay. Can you imagine that as a child? Oh my gosh, it's the, it's the Mandela effect. No, it was Noah, you couldn't handle the trauma. A lot of people are like, I made up a story in my mind like that, that they got warm and they married mammals and lived on. <laughs> you had a question. Um, there, do you know if there's been any talk about putting some of those, like the Hollywood Bowl or the O2 show, out on discs? Yeah, there's been a lot of requests. It's a money issue. The, every song we do, so here's the thing I learned on this, because I asked that. The first one, like, are we going to put this on DVD? They said, every time you perform a song in a venue, like the Hollywood Bowl or anything, they pay a yearly fee to ASCAP and BMI that covers any song played. So the musicians who perform it just get a residual check from live venues. I never get one, but my songs are all in movies. Um, so if we put it to DVD, that would be a secondary rights thing, and we'd suddenly have to buy the rights for those songs for DVD, and they know it's the Muppets, and they know it's Disney, so they're not like, oh, I'll give it to you for a buck. It's, you know. So suddenly the show, which we lost money on, I was told anyway, I mean, it wasn't a huge money loss, but it would suddenly be like a $10, $15 million show that no one wouldn't see it. It's just then we could sell the DVDs and probably they did the math and went, we're not going to send sell $15 million worth of DVDs for the show. So that's why I was saying earlier, it only works if you do a number of shows. So people have asked, are you going to like do that every year or something? It's, again, it's not up to me. I'm, I'm the last person they call, so I don't know, but I doubt it because it doesn't make any money. Yeah. Yes? Um, your sketches that you do for like designing different creatures or mm -hmm. puppets I keep most of them now, but uh, the stuff that was done for dinosaurs, the Hanson family owns. They, they just archive it. Like, you know, when you work for Lucasfilm, they own the maquettes I did for Jedi, and I guess, I don't know, Warner Brothers owns storyboards I did for Gremlins, stuff like that. But so yeah, you I, ever do, like, commissions or sell art? Or I do. I don't do it so much anymore because I've kind of been out of it more as a writer-director. But, I mean, not a lot of people are calling me going, can I buy a drawing? But, uh, you know, if you want one, we can talk about it. But it's not cheap. <laughs> Kirk made me play. Wait, one more question, then we go. One more, one more question. Well, is, Who's there the lucky? is there another thing in here after this? Uh, I'm, yeah, they're well, gonna screw them. No. The, the, the giant, the giant hook is gonna come yeah, out. All right, one last question because she looks so sad. Oh, no. uh, I was just wondering about all those. It better be a good question. <laughs> oh, the outtakes. Outtakes or like the Snoop Dogg, you know, scenes and everything. Is there any way to sneak that online? Or oh, I would get so in trouble. <laughs> come buy me a bottle of bourbon and come over to my house and we can screen it on the DVD thing. But oh, not Fireball. Not don't fire. give it. Don't give him Fireball. No, that there's there's uh, yeah no. I mean, a lot of times it's because they screw up and swear or it's just it's not you know a lot of them are just line flubs and they go ah, I messed up here it's not hilarious but uh, they. The ones you see are the ones that we've approved or allowed to be shown. Usually at the end of the on the DVDs, the extra extra material, special edition stuff. Yeah. I have that. I have Quentin Tarantino swearing a blue streak for his cameo, <laughs> um, but, uh, and we have to go. What does the R stand for? Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> and that's our show. Thank you. If you have burning questions, I'll stand outside and answer them for a couple minutes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Kirk R. Oh. Thatcher! Thank you. You made me very proud. 
I, I keep leaning towards the mic as though it's working. I find that amusing. Uh, you all know what the DragonCon app is. Go in the DragonCon app. Give this panel five stars, and next year we can have well, guests big ballroom, almost man. almost as good as Kirk. Oh, almost as good. But we'll never get anybody as good. Yeah. That was such an awesome time. Uh, it, it's it's funny. Obviously, I want every panel I do at DragonCon to be as good as it can possibly be. But it's almost hard when they're really good and really fun. And I get along well with whoever it is because then there's sort of a like, man, how will it always be that good? Can it always be that good? And and so far, fortunately, the answer has been yes. Uh, from Kane to Kirk Thatcher to Ric Flair and Sting to Ricky the Dragon Steamboat uh, to Tim Clark. Uh, I've, I've just been very lucky to, uh, to William Stout just great times wonderful generous people uh and and it's the magic of dragon con uh so there you go i hope you guys enjoyed the second part of the kirk thatcher panel i will be contacting him soonish to see if he wants to come on and do another skype conversation just to see what he's up to and maybe fill out some more stories that guy uh he warned me before the first episode we could just sit here and talk for six hours and and i'll tell you right now that's fine by me i have no problem with that so hopefully we'll get another hour or so in sooner than later Uh, and if you guys enjoyed this let me know join the needless things podcast facebook group shoot me an email at phantom troublemaker at gmail.com or just shoot dave west a message on facebook uh and also the needless things facebook page i never put that over because it it's facebook has rendered it nigh unto useless but you know what are you gonna do uh tell you what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna walk around this recording studio desk and i am going to sit down in the loud leather phantom zone chair and play some more resident evil but i'll be thinking about you guys because i love you guys thank you for listening to the needless things podcast you're the best you can find the show on itunes stitcher downcast or in the ears of a trader vix employee Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.